Hello and welcome to the 175th episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they made their start making games, what the limiters are and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focuses on developers themselves, and the second half we discuss the game they hit to promote, which in this case is Ash of Gods by Orem Dust. Constantin. Yep, hi there. Who are you, and what uh, do you do? Uh, my name is Constantin. I'm probably of less importance in the team. I'm a community manager, so what I mostly do is just talk about the game to different people across mm-hmm. different media. Yep. Okay, well, there's still a, a much under understated sort of uh, role, really, and... Uh, you know, you're talking to people like me and bringing people together and actually passing on those vital questions and messages back to the team. So, but how did you make your start um, working in video game development? Uh, well, for me, I was doing like community uh, relations kind of thing for IT companies earlier, but I've always enjoyed video games myself and I like them. So, when uh, I was looking for some new job, I thought, like, why don't I start try something? in uh, video games mm. and I just re- re- followed several guys who are uh, known in the Russian video game market and uh, there was this op- there, uh, and then I, m- I met these guys working on Ash of Gods so I get, got in touch with them we talked through what they're doing what I can offer like how can I help them out and it all kind of clicked I like the game and I like the, the team so uh, I've joined it okay so let's talk a little bit about the history and because Unfortunately, not a lot is discussed between, uh, uh, at least I believe, in Western Europe and, and Russia as regards to video game history. Do you want to delve a little bit into that? Because you were much more focused on, on computers more than consoles. Am I right in thinking that? I don't want to make any... I mean, this is my own personal observation. Is that true? Well, we currently focus on releasing uh, the PC version first. And, um, yeah. That's our initial goal, but we do want to port it to consoles later on. But well, I'm just thinking about history of Russia's video game history, not not Ashes of, of Gods. We'll oh, come on to that it, later. It, on. Yeah, it, so. oh, in that in that terms, then yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. It, like historically, Russia had been mostly PC gaming dominated market because yeah. consoles were expensive and people would buy computer for work or for some uh, office related tasks, things like that, and then they would just play some games on it. Yeah, and you had a lot of Spectrum clones, ZX Spectrum clones over there, didn't you? Is that uh, right? We had some Spectrum, yeah, we had our own Spectrum clones, yeah. so actually, like a lot of the guys you see nowadays uh, in game development, that's how they got there, just for some people, parents bought like Nintendo Entertainment System or like like Chinese clone, mm. and those guys became gamers, and then for those who were fortunate enough to receive a Spectrum, they probably did not have as much fun as a kid with it, but they got some... Uh, initial de- code, coding development skills, and many of them ended up being developers. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's fascinating to see how you're kind of like you were looking on at the West and how they were doing their thing. We we were doing our thing, I should say. And we're like we had a, in, especially in Western Europe, we had this hybrid. We had consoles and computers, and we were just sort of sloshing between the two. 
uh, and you know we've been switching over backwards and forwards for for decades. The US is pretty much console based, and I just find it fascinating how each region has its own history. Um, and for obvious and various reasons, you delved into computers and stuff, and many of which you built yourself or you cloned from other regions. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting sort of a pedigree or history to have, isn't it? Really. Yep. Well, I mean, consoles were big in Russia as well, probably yeah. around the sixth generation, I think, when okay. they had this Nintendo Entertainment System, and then right. I think the seventh was Super Nintendo. Yeah. And yeah. those are pretty big because they were still affordable. Then PlayStation right. One was less popular, and PlayStation Two didn't really take off that much. Mm. Uh, because the computers became available around that time in Russia, I think it was like around 2000, and uh, yeah. people switched to PC gaming. Yeah, an interesting time in the, sort of the country's history because all of a sudden it, it became more open, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, for for those reasons, we can't ignore those political reasons or things. They are going to use it uh, upheaval or changes, significant changes, and that then brought in different technologies. And yeah, that period, like the early sort of like two thousands, that's you know when you had um, like nine, late nineties, early two thousand, you had Baldur's Gate, Quake, Half Life. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> you know for pcs it's just like oh yeah not let's let's we forget you know um you know um the all the rts games as well just flooded you know um so um june 2 started it all and then it sort of, well, didn't quite start it all that was another game but no one talks about herzog's why because uh, <laughs> that was a mega drive game um but uh yeah so i just wanted to bring that out because i think the strength of that and that pedig- that sort of lineage that's the word lineage of uh, of 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 using or creating um, using computers not just simply as a uh, you know as an entertainment device as well as a tool for work and what have you has allowed you to create some very deep and complex games i'm right in saying that aren't i no no sounds reasonable yeah cool Okay, so um, and you made your start working in IT as a community manager for you know, business IT, like business the business kind of thing. So, what's the big difference between your previous role and your new role now? What would you say was the biggest difference? Oh, I guess it's much less formal. Uh, it's like we're I don't like I don't talk differently at work. I don't talk differently to the guys I'm working with, like that I would talk to just my friends and. Mm. Uh, so less formality, less just kind of procedures, more about actually just doing things and focusing on what's what's productive and uh, on what's right like to do at the moment. Okay. Yeah, I definitely see that. That's, that's a, I can simply empathize with, you know, you have the work face. <laughs> like, I'm talking my work, this is my work uh, version of Chris versus my, you know, my casual. But now you've got a situation for you, Constantine. Is like, oh yeah, I, I, I'm one person now. I don't have to split personalities or put a face on to, you know, because everyone does it uh, for certain in certain realms, most realms actually of their work. But to be, it must be quite liberating to work in a workplace where you don't have to check your language or indeed not language but phrases of terminology. I mean, you can freely talk about playing a board game last night or something like that without being judged <laughs> like you can just you know like you it's yeah it's, it's much less of a different like difference uh, between like how you present yourself in like mm. personal life and work and mm. specifically for indie studios it's even more true yeah truthful and uh yeah and it's fine it's fine because you can like you can talk about games you can talk about, like people know about games you can talk about other games on the market and uh just it's it's easier to connect with people it's easier to 
like develop trust and relation that's uh, like overall quality of life i think is higher if you actually like do if you're working with what you like and you enjoy it yeah yeah it works so um next question then and then i'll ask you this as a representative of the own dust the the studio so what do you think influences you as creators What's the biggest influence you find? Now, I know it's a, a difficult question to answer, but what I'm trying to flesh it out a little bit, what I'm trying to say is that what do you think you gravitate towards when you're making anything, whether it be Ashes of the Gods or anything else? What do you think inspires you or influences you more? Well, uh, for us in particular, uh, there was probably more of a, like the founders of the studio. It was their decision, but basically the founder of the studio, Nikolai, and his friend, Dmitry, who's our game designer, they worked together before. They worked for like other game development companies in Russia, but like larger ones. And uh, But they all, always kind of wanted to make their own game. They were sure they want to make an RPG. They always wanted to do it in 2D drone style because of the, their fascination with both some Western uh, animation, like Ralph Bakshi we mentioned, we mentioned on our website like the the way he did it and as well as like soviet animation we have we had a big school of 2d animation and uh, like legacy uh, with the, the cartoons they produce they look really great like they like the guys initially kind of were looking look it up to disney when they just started because Disney was already big at that when they started like around 60s the, uh, the russian mm. uh, animation but then they kind of developed their own techniques their own school and they they were also great so that, and then also like what we mentioned earlier, the whole legacy of hardcore PC games that were like hard and challenging and are at the same time rewarding. So that, hmm. and also the fantasy setting, like fantasy was fantasy scene and like both in terms of novels and uh, 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 role playing and uh, you know guys gathering in the forest dressed up as elves and dwarves and beating each other with wooden hammers. All those things like they all all popular in, uh, in Russia, so I guess that that's another thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. No, it's uh, so definitely it shows through in Ash of the Gods, where you've got this um, this uh, very terminus, which is a wonderful name for for a world. I'm not sure why it's called that. I mean, it could it could imply certain origins of it that mean something else but uh, that's all questions and no doubt answered in the game uh, maybe I don't know but um, uh, I, I do find that find that fascinating world world exploration yeah I'm a big explorer it's one of the reasons I played WoW for so many years <laughs> yeah <laughs> they, mean, have some, they have some great world building like they have all I think they had a whole like department working just on the world building and thinking of the world and how it works. Yeah, yeah. That's why fantasy novels or science fiction novels are so much larger because they have to describe the world they're in because they've, no one's got a common frame of reference. So you have to explain what the world is before. Like this is a tea, this is a teacup. What's a teacup? Well, <laughs> you know, it's like all all, all this stuff. So. Um, uh, that's a really good response to, as you say, you know, be inspired by others' the ability to create something from seemingly thin air. Um, so, yeah, excellent. Uh, and, next, and I guess like one, like one of the more recent things that we also should mention is the like Stoic Studio and their Banner Saga game, mm. because they actually 
what kind of what the founders kind of will thinking that they maybe should do one day like the guys from stoic like arnie and john they just they got together and made a game and they gave huge success mm. so founders also thought well if they did it we can probably do it as well and they kick-started it multiple times <laughs> <laughs> which is yep. amazing you know there's like well we're gonna do it again what we, the first one was successful i know we need more money what yeah yeah <laughs> but that's not how it works yes it does <laughs> we're doing it like this um, no, I'm a big fan of Banner Saga, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you mentioned it, because there are certainly going to be comparisons between the two. But I think when you, as a fan of, of, of that particular series of games, or both of them right now, I mean, the third's on its way, um, uh, I, I can certainly sort of um, uh, see there's definite similarities. But when you dig a little bit deep, when you scratch the surface, even, the, the similarities dissipate, dissipate quite quickly. But we'll talk about that later. What uh, the next question I've got is: What developer do you most admire in the industry, and why? Well, uh, the Stoic guys, as I mentioned, because uh-huh. they're uh, well. What I just said there, the Bioware, I think, because of the like great games they produced like we well yeah because uh, amazing games thought to be so stark but EA sort of killed Bioware they had like a bad run recently I guess oh but, they uh, just a bit just a bit just a bit yeah <laughs> it didn't, didn't go so well for them 2017 did it let's, let's, let's face but it then, but then but then like I, well, but then you have Obsidian and uh, it's kind of like I think like well they kind of replaced what Bioware used to be the Obsidian uh, Entertainment now with their like kind of resurrection of those old school RPGs. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So, so somebody step up, step they've stepped up to fill the niche for hmm. what people wanted. Yes, the um, I can't want to call it uh, Pillars of Autumn. It's not Pillar of Autumn because that's a spaceship from Halo, Pillar of Eternity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Pillars of Eternity, um, which is getting a sequel, sequel on its way. Um, we're looking I, forward to that. It's yeah. a, a great game, but I actually enjoyed their Tyranny game more because, like, Pillars of Eternity is like really. I think it's really like similar to the classic uh, Dungeon and Dragons games, like Icewind Dale mm. and Neverwinter. It's like they kind of took it and just did it again and mm. did it look great. With Tyranny, they've tried new things, like in terms of narrative and. Uh, how it's shorter but has great replay value and just the way uh, the story progressed like it's not a you're not playing for, for the hero like with big age is usually the, the I found yeah sorry Constantine so, uh, I, I yeah yeah, the Obsidian really—they've really turned things around for themselves. They were, you know, guns for hire for a while. Then they tried to make some own games, didn't quite work out. Then they gone back into like doing games for others, and then they started going making making their own games again. And um, yeah, I think the Timony game was just—that's um, you got to devour every word, haven't you? You got to read every single word. And sometimes I read the paragraphs multiple times because I'm like, really that's happening <laughs> it's just yeah uh, really really good game you're right it's a good recommendation and a good choice a developer anyone else before we move on to the last question in the first half well and then and then probably blizzard and valve hmm. uh i mean it's not well they've been continuously delivering great games so they gotta they gotta be doing something right like whenever most things they put their hands to like they they come out great and uh 
<clears throat> yeah, and I've, we've spoken about it before on this show, but uh, Blizzard's um, commitment to bringing entertainment games to the point where they would spend many, many years working on something and then go, you know what, this isn't working, let's not release it. <laughs> Just to have yeah, that, well, you know. They, they do that, they do have like... The capability to step step back, just look at what they've been doing so far, yeah. and uh, it's the same for for Valve. It's the same why they're not great. I think that why they're not releasing Half Life Three because I think that's uh, what Gabe said. That like it just well, whatever like people kept bringing up ideas and cards, but they just didn't seem to be good enough. That's right. Um, whether we like it or not, we'll never know the end, the, the fate of Gordon Freeman. <laughs> uh, I don't think we'll ever know what happened to him. And uh, he's, uh, but yeah, episode three or Half Life three, whatever they're going to ever intended to make, never came to pass. And uh, it's a bit sad. It's more than a bit sad. I would have liked to have seen it because they, you know, you can you can tell compelling stories using games like Wolfenstein, for example. That's that's been a really good. Um, um, uh, example of uh, uh, making games or making first-person shooters with a good story, but um, yeah, what are you going to do? It's uh, it, it, they're not going to make any games anymore because they clearly don't, apart from Dota Two, which is <laughs> very strange. But anyway, <laughs> and there we have Blizzard making their own MOBA. That makes no sense. Anyway, because <laughs> after all, Dota was a, a mod, one of their games. Last question, then, the first half of the show. So, well done. You made it. We're doing well. The question is this, and uh, I have to legally ask it, because we're a video game podcast, therefore I have to ask this question. What are you playing right now? I've actually only bought today the Kingdom Come Deliverance, and I want to check it out later, because it became a, it just started selling today, and... Uh, it's. I think it's an early access right now, but people have been writing good things about it, so I want to check it out. Kingdom Come. Can you uh, expand on that? I'm not, I don't think I'm familiar with it. Uh, it's a. Well, I think the the easiest way they describe it is like Skyrim without magic. So it's a. Uh, it's set in Bohemia, like mid- medieval German, and you play for a. Uh, I would think just a guy whose family got murdered and there's this whole revenge story but you just basically you travel around Bohemia you fulfill quests and uh, develop yourself develop, like, I don't think there's any party or anything so it's, it, it is similar to Skyrim mm. and it has, like, it has first person fencing like combat which seems really interesting and some survival elements that you need to like sleep and eat Okay. And, uh, so yeah that, that, that one and that came out today did it? Yeah, I think it just became available today. Hmm, we'll have to delve into that. It says full-on RPG, but he said it's early access. Uh, yeah, I think it's still early access. I didn't actually pay pay attention when I, when mm. I was looking at it. Okay. Anything else? Uh, anything not, recently not really. played? Anything notable that you'd, you'd like to share your thoughts on? Well, uh... In terms of RPG, I don't think there have been any big releases recently, so I haven't, like, this is the one I want to check out. And, like, usually my go-to game when I just want to uh, just relax, like, in the weekend evening, there'd be something by Paradox. There. Uh-huh. Right. So, like, Stellaris is the one I usually go to right now. Excellent. So tell us, what do you think of the how Paradox do things and that they release the base game and then they drip-feed little expansions? I say little, they're usually quite expansive. Yeah, like, this is like this yeah. is literally like amusing for me how they they're like I 
well, it's kind of probably you could say business model, or you can say it's uh, just the way they do things. Hmm. Like they release a base game, and then they would be adding things, and uh, but they communicate with their fan base, they communicate with their like player base, uh, do things that people enjoy. So I don't really see anybody complaining much about their uh, their, their system. Like people actually happy to see some new things coming, because most of the time they do add some really great features, and people excited to to check them out hmm. and. Uh, like and with time, like you purchase a game, and then but though the DLCs, like you, if you, uh, if you're comfortable with like the prices they set on them, then uh, you like the game gets like like in a in a year or two or three or so, like the game becomes like twice, three times bigger. Mm. It's quite incredible, isn't it? I remember about a year ago, I think, when they, well, maybe two, when they started first talking about Stellaris, and uh, I got sort of hooked onto that and Endless Space 2, which is also a very good 4X space game. They're very different, though. Very different in interface and styling and, um, and they, yeah, as, as they should be. But, yeah, Stellaris is... Uh, there's a lot going on there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I do enjoy it, but I do find myself um, going down a, a, a bit of a rabbit... or going down a wrong path of pursuing a particular tech tree that wasn't really appropriate for my race or my strategy so i need to sort that out but uh, yeah it's uh, it is an ex- extraordinary game and yeah paradox uh, continue to defy um logic because the game the type of games they were making everyone's saying no one's buying these and like they will they will and they do so yeah, they sort of they 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 stood against the uh, the rest of the industry and said, no, we're going to make really complex um, grand strategy games that you think no one wants, <laughs> but they do. Turns yep. out because I think one of the things that developers have really learned over the last ten fifteen years is that never underestimate the intelligence of your audience. Do you know what I mean? I mean, well, I think I think it more goes along with the that there is a. The best option was always just to do what you're what you're personally excited about, like the and then usually just you can deliver great results. Like the guys, like I think the like for me the biggest like hit last year was Cuphead, and uh, mm. the, the guy those guys they working on it. I remember the name of the studio. They posted a big diary on how they did it, and I think the guys they, they like they did some crazy things. They like they had to mortgage their houses like for second time. They did yes. They, and they like they they've put all their time effort and into it, and uh, it was two D platformer platformer, which was kind of indie two D platformer, which was I think like really saturated uh, mm. area like last year because a lot of lot of people did it, yeah. but they 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 did it great that like everybody was speaking about it. No, because you looked at it, it went wait that's a nineteen thirties cartoon. Yeah, and also because of their animation, like I think some things they did might have been an overkill, like they. They purchased some like paper made in the 30s that was used by Disney, uh, and they like drawn on it and they scanned it and. Uh, oh so, my goodness! Really? Yeah, I, think, I don't know. I don't know if that was. I think spent a pretty good good money on it as well. I think we're just purchasing this paper and doing this whole thing. I don't know if that if that like shows in the actual game, but it shows their level of dedication for sure. Mm, certainly. Okay. Um, so that's the end of the first half. Well done, you made it. Um, we are now going to delve deep into Ashes of God's Redemption to give it its full title. Yeah. 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 
Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we, we forget about the redemption part. I know, but I, I, I don't chip <laughs> that in. So tell us, this is your first question. It's not really a proper question, it's a request. It's the zeroth question, as uh, regular listeners will know. It's called, um, uh, you know, tell us about Ashes of God's Redemption. What is it? Uh, well, in terms of the game, it's a mixture of several genres. So probably the major dominating ones are visual novels and tactical RPG. So roughly half, the, half of the time you go through dialogues that uh, have your characters talking to each other, or you go through different, like, drone scenes with the like the service backgrounds and it's just like plot and st- story development uh it's a bit different from visual novels because it's more in term it's more closer to western rpgs where it's like you have lots of choices and consequences because in visual novels it's a lot of it just just enjoying the story here you can actually affect the story mm-hmm. so half of it is dead and half of it is a tactical turn-based rpg so you have a your like grid-based field and uh, two parties and they just fight it like and then they, they fight each other using like mixture of skills abilities and we've also thrown some collecting collectible card games elements into it so besides the units you have a deck of cards that you can use and do some powerful effects so that is basically it and uh that, that, that what the game is okay so yeah it's um it's a very very strong narrative narrative driven game with a lot of role playing aspects and stats statics and statistics statics statistics and and um for each um character that you control of which there are many um some characters um well we'll talk about it later but um and I'll now want to ask you my first design question now, because having played the... the so there's a demo out at the moment. Well, not out, but I've had a chance to play this 90-minute sort of uh, demonstration, of a, a proof of concept, almost, of what uh, Ashes of God's Redemption will be once it's released. And uh, one of the things I noticed is that, yes, it is a turn-based strategy game. You have to position and be careful about how you, what you do and how you do it. Um, with each character um, but I noticed that um, as a resource there are two resources there's energy and uh, the actual character's health and when you carry out an action um, you'd I assumed that well that would expend energy to carry out an action and health is just a, a thing you, exp- you g- only gets dropped when um, you are um, being attacked or you've taken damage but turns out in many regards when you actually do something you actually drain health as well why well the way the combat system was developed like the founders Nikolai our game designer Mm. they just played uh, like with like pen and paper kind of version of it and they were adding things removing things Uh, they started like with basic just units with parameters and then they added some other parameters they removed some and uh, at some point, like somebody, and the idea was that you can you can add the rule and then play with it, and then if the rule sticks, if people can enjoy it, uh, it stayed there. So one, it was just like an idea. What if for some powerful attacks you need to spend your health on? And uh, usually, like in RPGs, it's limited to some sort of like blood mage classes that they'd be using their own like or like barbarian. They'd be using mm. their health points for attacks. But we just thought, what? Well, if he, everybody can use it, what if, uh, like an, ar- an archer, he can like draw, like just in terms of like 
uh, action and reward. Well, he can do like a risky action, like almost kill himself, but also kill an enemy. How that worked. And then mm. we feel like that made that made combat more like varying and it gives you more more options for like some risky decisions. And then you need to like face the consequences, see if they pay off or not. It just suddenly adds an, a, a layer of strategy or tactics to an already very tactical game. You're right. You you expose yourself to risk. You know, I'm going to now do this devastating attack with the assumption or hope that it would actually take out most of these enemies in the process. Without, but unfortunately, I'm also also going to expend so much stamina. Basically, because that's what we're talking about here. You're you're expending stamina, and by doing so, you're you're stretching yourself, or the characters stretching themselves to the point they take damage as well. Um, but um, normally the the reward for that, provided you timed it right and you're in the right position, is um, is um, great compared to what's been expended. But you just have to balance those those things. And I find it quite interesting that you're presenting the, the player with that with that choice. My next yep. question, yeah, my, my next question is um, I want to talk about the cards. Because there are cards that you can play during the game, during any combat situation, which can be triggered to grant bonuses to um, most of the characters, all of the characters on the field. Or s- depends on on the card, of course. Um, how have you found designing these cards? Well, it kind of went along with our idea to drop randomness in the tactical part, so we mm. don't have hit and miss ratios. And uh, because when we were like playing the paper, pen and paper version, we didn't like. We, we realized we don't want to use dice rolls, and we, nobody's enjoying like having his guy randomly killed by a crit, or having his character beast by a critical failure. Well, I mean, people do. Okay, no, people do obviously enjoy it in Dungeon and Dragons, but we realized like for what we were doing, it felt more close to chess, and you don't have hit and miss chances in chess. Uh, so we dropped that, but then. Uh, realize that the randomness should be elsewhere. Uh, there should still be some luck and still be like some unexpected outcomes. And that's where the card came in because uh, most of them have have randomized effects. So they would apply like a buff or a heal or they would damage an enemy. But you don't usually choose which one in particular. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we've just been trying like different card designs and seeing which ones were worked, which ones just didn't add anything much, or which ones were too powerful. We had this fun card that was called uh, Sacrifice. It killed one of your unit, but units and gave you control of over some other unit. Uh, it was fun to play it in skirmishes. It didn't transfer well to like the narrative uh, campaign because it didn't feel right to kill one of your units randomly and that, them possibly being like some of your close party members. So th- that was the process. Yeah, we, everybody just throwing in all, all the ideas they could think of, and we just been trying them. And we had this web web page, very basic. It, it looked just like uh, HTML 1.0, like it was really really basic. And we could try. You could we were trying all of them there, and then just eliminating those that did not work and being left with uh, what we have now. Okay. Okay, it's, um, I just found it really fascinating because I play a lot of board games myself, um, and um, there's like one that's come out called Rising Sun, which is a really everyone's talking about. It's a good game. It's a good game, and 
that has a lot of cards in it and, and enhancements and you, you you sort of everyone thinks you've got you're doing something on the board but then you can actually fit these these cards in and they can actually turn the tide of battle provided you release them just at the right time uh, and uh, I think they're really well so far what I've played of the game and I know it's early days and you've still got a lot of work to do and you, you've probably seen way more than I have because you're, you're working on it but uh, I'm really excited to see more of these cards as the game uh, is released or, or, or that sort of thing so yeah well done to including those because you could have broken the game quite easily but uh, they're very delicately put in. So, yeah, excellent stuff. Yeah, like, they're trying to make it that, like, when you, like, when your team on the verge of dying, and they just, but you could save them with just a little, little push, or you can do this, like, the opposite of the enemy. Like, that's where one of the cards to come in. Hmm. Yeah, they're just, they seem to just really sort of well-suited to the game. And also how they're brought in. I'm not going to spoil anything for players, but there's a there's an exchange that occurs um, with one of the characters and said, oh, you've got these things. How did you get... Well, these were just bits of you know, tiles, and now they're actually alive. Why is that? You know, and it's, uh, so it's, it's obviously something very strange is going on. Speaking of stories... Um, this is my next question to you because we can't talk about a narrative-driven game without talking about the storyline and its structure. Can you reveal much about how it's? Is it got multiple endings, or is it just got? Is it like one where you actually just different doing going to different? Is it just um, got different middles, but one beginning and one end? Can you tell us about that? Well, the way it worked, we like took traditional fantasy formula of having a hero and then the end of the world coming. <clears throat> mm-hmm. But then, and then you usually have the hero set up to save the world for not always clear, like clear reasons of why he decided he's, he's supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we started with that, but then we actually took three heroes and we developed like background for them, their motivations, and what they what they're looking for. And staying from there, like you play consecutively for each one of them, like you play one chapter for one guy, then the second one for the second character, and so on. And uh, you, you progress through the story, and we try to make sure that his, the character's motivations are clear and it's clear what they're doing and why. Uh, but at the same time, you're free to make choices on how you're capable of achieving those. So let's say one of the, the one of the main characters is. Uh, Retired captain of the city guard, and once the whole of all the event starts, he's uh, uh, it's called like the reaping, so it's basically like a form of end of the world that, that like uh, has like all kind of dis- like the, both diseases and the like total war starts. And uh, his daughter, his daughter is one of those that gets sick, so his ba- basic motivation is find a cure for his daughter and also maybe save his son that's uh, in a military station elsewhere. But the way you progress the story, like, are you also want to be a good leader for your party, and you also want to save your party, or you only, or you decide you only want to say, like, focus on saving your daughter, and you don't really care for anything else, if you're willing to help people along the way or not, like all those choices, they would affect the way your story progresses and the way people react to you and the way either other characters, other two protagonists' stories will develop, and then they all meet like in in one place and. Uh, we have, uh, and depending on all the things you did and did not do, we have around uh, six or I think it's six or seven major uh, endings. So like things can like there, one of them is good, like three are okay, three are bad, and but also your story can end earlier. That's like why we try to include this rogue like storytelling in the game 
like you can get your main character killed uh, half through the game, kind of the Game of Thrones styles. So you just you just pick several wrong options. You not not doing some right things along the way. You're doing some like things that you're not supposed to do, and then like half you're half in, half into the game, your main character dies, and you would not be getting good ending after it. You would still like see how the story develops, but it would end earlier and uh, not the way it's supposed to end. It's really quite challenging to develop such complex storylines sort of interweaving to make sure it makes sense because you can get easy get contradictions can't you it is it, it, it is challenging we like initially we wanted to make it that like anybody can die at any moment so you have this uh, feel of like things being real and you would not just you know pick a pick an, like we, we wouldn't want to like uh, players to pick an option to, let's say, the ambush in the forest. We didn't want them to start a fight with the bandits to get some loot and experience. We wanted them to like know that they can lose some of their party members and their guys would die permanently. Uh, so we wanted them to make like meaning to make all the choices meaningful, meaningful and conscious. And but it is it is hard. So I mean, we do we do find like solutions to it like some characters would have like temporary plot armor like if this, let's say he survived to, to up some point he needs to survive like it's like this episode he needs to survive he can die after it before it but he would need to do this thing here but mm. we try to keep them to a minimum so for most of it like you can lose any character in combat and you can lose many of the characters by making wrong decisions you can even not meet some party members because you took the wrong road and you spent like extra day getting somewhere. Once you got there, the the guy who you could have saved, he was already dead. Hmm. I mean, as personally speaking, I, I this reminds me a lot of the story construction. I mean, I, I run pen and paper role playing games, and I find it really quite fun to to mess with not mess with them but basically say well you've got to move now because if you don't something might happen and you're like oh well just let's just tarry on around here and keep talking to this npc for hours on end great you know and it just the you know consequences of one's actions that's the that's the strength of any rpg because otherwise you're just i'm sure you heard this trope you're just a bunch of murdering hobos <laughs> you know the, the the murder hobo, which is an awful thing to be in an RPG. Don't don't go down that route, everyone. Just don't. Uh, but it happens, unfortunately. It does happen, and it's a constant struggle. I find is when I'm running RPGs, like you're just a bunch of murdering hobos, aren't you? No, yeah, you are. And then they realise that they're doing things without consequence. That's the idea. You're you're running around killing things without consequence. And uh, this Ashes of the Gods Redemption is weeks of every even the most minor decision you could think of like that that was going to bite on the ass don't know it now you think it's really quite innocuous and in the game's defense it does warn you of this it does say you know gives a little icon and says this is a really big decision (laughs) and if you go one way it might bite on the bum about you know um, uh, several hours later uh gameplay terms not not real not not in the story because it could be months later yeah, like the way we try to balance it, we, mm. the game is broken down into chapters. So we wanted to make sure that each chapter we have one major choice that would have effect on the game's ending, or to have effect like several chapters later, a major effect. Mm. Then there would be like three to five like uh, middle kind of ground uh, choices that still meaningful. Like it, they would be in terms of like you meeting another party member or not meeting him, uh, like having like the state of the world improved or not. And then also, like, the variety of, like, immediate choices. Like, you decide, like, you find a 
man sitting on the side of the road, you decide to help him out, and then he either like pays you, like he gives you some money or some resources, or he decides to attack you or steal something. So yeah, we try to balance it like that. So there are choices, and they're meaningful. They have real consequences, and some of those are found out later, some are immediate. But still, we wanted to player to throughout the time he's playing the narrative part to make conscious choices and be wary of his like of their results. Hmm. The last question, then. I know, all good things must come to an end, but we do have to end eventually. But my question is um, about the combat again. So a little bit, I know, it's, it's, it's important, it's very important to the game, because that informs how your characters then survive, or not, as the case may be. The AI, apparently, you've designed it in such a way that it reacts to the player's style of play. So if you're into flanking manoeuvres you know, constantly trying to draw enemies in and then create a trap. So you swing the trap into them and they find themselves in a kill zone, which I've done a couple of times successfully, I'm happy to say. Um, but the AI would say, oh, you're trying to do that again, are you? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, how has this been developed? Well, uh, we had a guy work on it. He's a, that's like what he kind of specialized in in AI development. But we were running like we were just running combat and simulations, recording the results, and uh, there I mean there's still limited things a player can do. And once we got big enough, like sample, we taught the AI to address the player's tactics. So if he's always uh, let's say he dev- like if he always feels a strong front line and then using archers. The enemy would be using archers as well, so they get like in a fair position. If a character uses a lot of like guys with a lot of health and not many energy points, well, they be, he'll be like he can get through like two, three com- like battles with it. But the next one he'll be meeting in a like a party that focuses on like killing uh, guys that like has lots of health and few on energy points specifically. And it works the same in the combat. So if uh, player develops like a pattern of things he does in combat like the eventually the next one he'll be facing be the, the computer will already, like already know like how to counter that so and we can also cheat a lead there because the with uh, like we can adjust the build-ups of the in the encounters the builds of the enemy parties like you'd be mixing so we wouldn't have like auto leveling for them but it just be instead of like meeting three bandits and two bandit archers you'd be meeting Three like two bandits and then two like tanky bandits and two archers. Hmm. It's it's a really good system. It means that it keeps you on your toes. Yeah, constantly. It, it's the same. Yeah. It's the same as for the narrative. We didn't want a player just to build a party that can like that's broken and can get through anything. We wanted him to always think about whom he should take in the next battle and like if he should leave some guy behind or he, like he should try something new. Hmm. Mm, mm. Okay, well, it's uh, it's um, it does make um, uh, replayability, uh, you know, that's something that's going to be perfect for this game because you're going to try different storylines and go through all all sorts of different things. So um, it's and also to have this um, evolving um, AI that's reacting to your style of play means you won't actually find yourself yawning. Going, oh, here we go. I'll just do this, just do this. this. Can't do that anymore. Because it's like, oh, well, that worked the last combat, but not this time, because I've now got these different units. So, And you just have to keep thinking, knowing... I think the best way to treat any strategy game or tactical game is like, what tools do I have? I have these tools. Right. 
And what what puzzle? What thing do I well, say? Solving a puzzle. It's not quite that. Is that how do I uh, overcome these things using the tools that I have? And you have to be very careful and measured. Every click, every decision you make on that battlefield has ramifications for good or ill. It's the ill ones that are problematic because they can be quite punitive. Um, so you've got to be careful because there are many times I've found myself doing something, I don't know, exposing my, myself to a, a, an attack because I can do it. Like, oh, I'll just go charging in. I'm sure I can, you know, wait, lay waste to some of them. And turns out I didn't. And then some of them are still standing. And therefore I get chopped to pieces. That, that happened a couple of times when I first started playing it. Like, I need to, need to rein it in a bit. Um, you know, going in with song, uh, sword singing, uh, sword uh, swinging, uh, it doesn't normally work, I've found. It depends on the, the combat and on the people you're facing. But typically, it's, uh, you have to be much more thoughtful about things. Yep. Like well, as I mentioned, we kind of were looking at chess. We wanted to have this similar feeling that you need to think about the way you position your units a lot, mm. and think about like, what like some actions. Like, what if I like I, I do this, then next turn the enemy will do that. Like he will counter it, or he will like attack my guy who got exposed. So we wanted the player to like try to think two, three turns ahead and just play out different versions of how things might go in his head, and then choose one and see if if he calculated correctly. Well. Yeah, and and it's, it really does show that um, uh, it's not fun. It's not frustrating either. That's something that um, most games of uh, good games say is I've, I've overcome that problem of frustration. Because you know when you get to that point where like, well, I've got other things to do. <laughs> I don't have to put up with this kind of thing. Sure, you and I have experienced that as gamers themselves. As ourselves, at one point you've played a game like I can't, I can't be bothered. I don't care. This is too hard, or it's just too frustrating. And you know, I never felt that it was there was the game's fault that I made the error, or, or made or exposed the the unit to too much damage. It's my fault. You know, I'm the one that uh, put this unit right in the middle when they were just an archer. <laughs> what are you doing? You know, why are you, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's why I wanted to get rid of randomness because you know those famous screenshots from XCOM. When you're having like when there's an alien staying right in front of a unit and there's like forty eight percent hit chance. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like we, we didn't want to have that. Yeah, dice rolling for the sake of dice rolling. No. No. I don't like it in RPGs either when, you know, um I've I've i have played some games and some systems and you go for example, there's one system I'm playing, uh, a game called Coriolis. Where the the old, the only system is a D six system, and every success is marked by a six on a die. So the only way to overcome that is you roll more of the dice. That's it. <laughs> so you might be an expert sort of engineer, but you roll seven ones. You go, oh, you screwed it up. Like, no, I'm not. I'm really good at this. <laughs> you know, I'm really good at fixing things, and now I'm an idiot apparently. You know, it's it's it is, it's it's you know making um, skill check systems that are reasonable. It's actually far harder than people realize. Yeah, we wanted like we wanted the player to like enjoy this that feeling that he did he did the right calculation and he like planned for two three moves ahead and succeeded mm. rather yeah. than he planned for something and it just randomly failed or he yeah. he was supposed to die but then he randomly got critical success. We, we didn't want that. We wanted him to. To reward different things. Yeah, you don't want the, you know, oh, you know, stuff happens. Like, really? Really? Okay. So, um, 
it's coming out of Windows PC. Any other platforms? I can't remember. Is it Mac as well? Can't remember. If it well, yeah, we do have we do have a Mac build. We tested as well, and uh, right. Linux seems like Linux. We also try like we, mm. we don't put those builds as regular as the PC ones, but like mm. every few uh, every several Windows builds, we put those together as well to see if things work fine there. But uh, yeah. we're, using, we're using Unity for engine for the engine, and that's one of the okay. things they pride themselves on that it's easy to port it both on different uh, PC like. Operating systems as well as consoles as a so you're, mobile. Doing, so you're doing a mixture of C sharp and, and Unity to, to build it, yeah? Uh, well, it, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, Unity is the engine, I think the guys using yeah. the, the code in C sharp within it, yeah? Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they complement each other. Yep. Um, one can't be used without the other. That's not true. C sharp can be used on its own. What am I talking about? Well, I mean, um, I think yeah. Unity, Unity also has some kind of their own language that you can yes. use for basic things, but mm. not, not too many you can do that with it. No. But I just want to make because I have a, a Mac laptop because I travel a lot and uh, that thing can take a bullet and still work. Uh, <laughs> but uh, my, my, my gaming PC, which is a dirty, great, giant desktop thing, which is I can fit a small family in. I'm looking at it now. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's that's one I've, I play my games on. So uh, I'm sure you can empathise with that kind of like you know, it's got nine fans in it. I need to take one out. I think. Anyway, <laughs> um, Constantine, it's been fantastic having you on, and uh, it's wonderful hearing your enthusiasm and sharing your knowledge about the development of Ashes of God's uh, Redemption. Uh, is there anything else you want to add before we end? Well, I guess, for, first of all, thanks yeah, for inviting me. It was nice being able to talk about the game. Uh, it's always like, you know, we always like find some things people interested in that we didn't think that we should mention, so we changed like the way we communicate. And uh, I guess just about the game, yeah, we said, like, I don't think we actually said it, like we said on releasing it in March, and there's a Steam page mm-hmm. there, so those interested can go and check it out already. Yeah, I was going to, that was my final sign-off, just right. to say that, uh, yeah, when's it coming out? It's imminent, it's a month away, because February is, is, is halfway done, which I still can't believe, because, um, yeah, <laughs> this year's just going like the clappers. So, yeah, um, February's almost done, and we'll be really looking forward to the release of Ashes of Gods. But until then, um, do do look out, check out on Steam, have a look at the videos, listen to this show, of course, uh, and, and and the other medium that's out there about this, this extraordinary game, and uh, really, really looking forward to its release. So thank you, Constantine. Yep, thanks again. And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review. And you can also, don't forget, listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com and you can stream the show from there. You just look up the Sausage Factory and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris O'Regan, no apostrophes. And uh, if you want to email me, any feedback on the show or actually you're a developer you listen to this show and want your game featured on it please do email me at chris at spong.com also don't forget to check out the computer game show which is the stablemate podcast shall we say of spong.com bye <laughs>